five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Verse 5, we have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Verse 10, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a set. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Verse 17, after an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But, these, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today. Verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings when Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to, keep him, to, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. 
At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus, but because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. That was the awesome reading of God's word. Let's pray and dive into our study. God, wow, so much to learn um, from this. Um, And so, God, we are limited as human beings. We can only see what you reveal to us. And so, God, I pray for every single person in this room that you would speak clearly to all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, The Sanhedrin, which was the highest court of justice and the Supreme Council in ancient Jerusalem, were recruited by a commander of Roman soldiers in Jerusalem. His name was Claudius, and he recruited them to do this, to find out exactly why Paul is being accused by the Jews. If you've been with us in the past three chapters, Paul has arrived in Jerusalem, and as soon as he's arrived in Jerusalem, there's mayhem, okay? Like, riots are happening, people are trying to kill him, craziness going on. And so Claudius, the Roman, um, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, basically says to the Sanhedrin, Jewish court, Supreme Court, and says to them, find out what is happening with this guy, why so many Jews hate him, and why so many Jews are trying to kill him. But if you was with us last week, if you weren't, I would really recommend that you read it. Um, Acts 23, the trial um, with the Sanhedrin was a disaster, right? Because midway through the trial, what happened was that the Sanhedrin, which was made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, they start fighting each other. They get into this heated and violent debate about the resurrection. They obviously have different opinions. Paul brings it up, and they just go crazy, right? It's just a crazy scene. Um, So much so that Claudius, the commander, says, Hey, Paul, I'm going to drag you out of this violent dispute, and I am going to send you over to Caesarea um, to Felix the governor, and hopefully he'll be able to uh, um, figure out what is actually going on with you. Five days after Paul arrives in Caesarea to be tried by the Roman governor Felix, several members of the Sanhedrin, this is including the high priest, okay, also arrived in Caesarea. They've made the 50-mile journey for the trial, hoping to do all they can to get Paul convicted and sentenced to death. And in order to ensure they get the result they're looking for, the Sanhedrin, what they do is they hire an attorney named Tertullus. (laughs) I hope I pronounced his name right. It's so hard. Tertullus to state their case against Paul in the presence of Felix. Now, Tertullus is no slouch of an attorney. He's not. 
He's been doing this for years. He's not just come out of law school, right? He hasn't. He's been doing this for years. And so he has the experience and the legal expertise to get the results they're looking for. Unlike the Sanhedrin, Paul the Apostle did not have an attorney to represent him. So he has to represent himself. And so the appearance of the high priest other members of the Sanhedrin and an elite attorney spells trouble for Paul. Like, how's he going to get out of this one? This is crazy. And so this morning, this is what we're going to do. We're going to look at this trial, and we're going to go into this courtroom, right? And I'm going to be using three scenes um, to help us understand it more, okay? The first scene will be false accusations. Okay, the second will be a solid defense, and the last scene will be the tragedy of procrastination. All right, scene one, false accusations. And so the trial begins with the opening statement for the prosecution by Tertullus. He steps forward and says this, look at verse two. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix. We acknowledge this profound gratitude. As you may have noticed, this opening statement is unusual. He doesn't introduce himself or thank Felix for like having him and the opportunity he has. Instead, he begins by praising Felix. He heaps praise on Felix for how his leadership has brought about an extended time of peace for the Jewish community. Okay, this all may sound genuine, but the truth is, it's sheer flattery. Because the Sanhedrin didn't really appreciate Felix and his leadership. What Tertullus has just said was an exaggeration of what was really true. And how do we know this? History tells us that Felix did not bring peace or prosperity to those he governed. He didn't. In fact, during his time as governor, there was constant unrest and violent clashes between the Romans and the Jews. John Stott, who was an awesome pastor in London, says this. In reality, Felix had put down several insurrections with such brutality that he earned for himself the horror, not the thanks, of the Jewish population. And so, Tertullus's opening statement may appear to be genuine, but the truth is it's sheer flattery. It's insincere praise intended to gain favor with Felix and strengthen their case against Paul. And so, after heaping insincere praise on Felix, Tertullus then presents his charges against Paul. Look at verse 5. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. <laughs> he is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, 
and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. And so the first charge they bring against um, the Apostle Paul is that he's a troublemaker, okay? Um, um, who has been stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world, okay? The word troublemaker, if you look at the translation in the Greek, this is, you know, I'm using the NIV today and your ESV or whatever version you have might have something else, but this is kind of a soft way of explaining what Tertullus was trying to say, right? If you look at the Greek, he basically says, this guy is a plague, okay? He is a pest, right? Troublemaker, not as strong, okay? But he is a plague and a pest, and because of this reason, he has been stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. The second charge accuses Paul of being a ringleader, okay, of a movement, um, a set they refer to as the Nazarene. In those days, okay, the word Nazarene was a disrespectful term used for followers of Jesus. In other words, Paul's being accused of being a leader of a movement devoted to Jesus, the Nazarene. All right? Think about it. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, his followers were named as the Nazarenes. All right? And it was a disrespectful term for them. And so they're basically saying, hey, this Paul is a ringleader, and he is one of the leaders of this sect, this cult, this movement called the Nazarene. It's important to know that this is a serious charge because it points to the fact that Paul, okay, is a leader of a movement whose founder was crucified by Roman authorities, okay? And so, to Tyler's, all of those, they're being very strategic with their charges here. Okay, notice it's not religious in any nature. The charges they're bringing up, it's all political. The third charge they bring against Paul is that he tried to desecrate the temple. What does this mean? Um, they are accusing Paul of defiling the Jewish temple when, if you look at two chapters back, he took a non-Jew, a Gentile, into a part of the temple reserved only for Jews. And so the three charges they brought against Paul before Felix are these. He was a threat to Roman peace as a troublemaker. He was a Christian and he had attempted to defile the temple. You guys following along? I hope you are. As I said earlier, they are being very tactful and strategic with the charges they're bringing up, right? It's not religious. It's all mostly political. All right? And they are doing this for a reason, because back then, the accusation of being an agitator and a ringleader and a troublemaker wasn't viewed by Rome as a petty crime, but it was viewed as a serious crime. If you were involved in anything that 
that threatened the public order of things, you were involved in a crime punishable by death. That was scene one, false accusations. Scene two is a solid defense. And so the Apostle Paul is being accused of stirring up riots, being a ringleader of an anti-Roman cult, and disrespecting the temple. And he is right now possibly facing the death penalty. But before he's convicted, he's given an opportunity to defend himself. And he does a really good job at it, okay? What he does is he addresses Felix politely, lays out the facts, and basically explains how the charges against him are false and presents the gospel in a manner his audience can understand. It's fantastic what Paul does. Okay, we're going to go through it now, but I would highly recommend that during the week, read Acts 24 and get an idea of how Paul defends himself. It's fantastic. And so let's look at what he says and how he starts his defense. Look at verse 10. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. And so unlike Tertullus, Paul doesn't begin his defense with flattery. Instead, he begins his defense by simply acknowledging the fact that Felix has the experience and the reputation to preside over this trial. Okay? After his introductory statement, Paul begins his defense in this way. Look at verse 11, 12, and 13. He says, You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Okay? My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or staring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. In other words, this is what Paul's saying. Okay, the reason I'm not guilty, the reason I'm innocent of being a troublemaker and causing a riot is because I've only been in Jerusalem, okay, for one week. And then after one week, I got arrested. There's no way I could have stirred up a riot in that time. And those, he continues to say, who are trying to accuse me know for sure that I didn't argue with anyone or intentionally stir up a crowd in any way. Therefore, there is no proof that I'm guilty of stirring up a crowd. Look at verse 14. However, Paul continues, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And so Paul is saying, look, I'm not guilty. I'm not a rioter. I'm not a troublemaker in any way, but I am guilty. I am guilty of being part of a sect of the Nazarene. I am guilty of being a follower of the way. With these words, this is what Paul's doing. He's admitting that he is a Christian, a follower of the way, a follower of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who believes everything that is written in the Old Testament. N.T. Wright, who's another Brit, awesome guy, says this, Paul is claiming the moral, theological, and biblical high ground. For him, 
following Jesus is not an odd hobby that might lead him away from scripture and tradition, but it is the way, indeed the way by which the one true God has fulfilled all that the scriptures have said. Paul, in other words, is claiming to be a loyal and faithful Jew. Okay? Paul then goes on to refute the charge that he's an enemy of Jewish people. Um, and we just read that. Um, and he brings up the purpose of his visit to Jerusalem in verse 17. In verse 17, he goes, The reason why I was in Jerusalem in the first place was because I had a gift for the poor and I wanted to present my offering. By the way, I was ceremonially clean when they found me. And so basically, he's just saying, Look, guys. Every charge you have brought is unfounded. Every charge you have put forward is, off, is a false accusation. Paul concludes his defense in verse 19 to 21, and he just invites those who have charges against him to bring them. Um, and this invitation just implies that all previous charges cannot be proven and that if they want the governor to convict him of a crime, they would have to come up with new charges. As a church, we're all about being a church family on mission with Jesus. And as we seek to be a church family on mission with Jesus, we will be falsely accused. We will encounter people who are hostile towards Christianity. People who will do everything in their power to oppose the gospel. And I'm not just talking about people just that are being um, um, expressing anger and expressing hostility towards Christianity, but I'm talking about people that will seek um, to do everything they can to discredit Jesus, and they would want to do it through legal means, okay? In today's legal landscape, it's not uncommon for churches or Christians to find themselves on the receiving end of a lawsuit based on false accusations. And the question is, how then should we respond when we've been wrongly accused? Should we remain silent and not do anything about it? Sometimes, definitely, that may be the best thing to do. Other times, I think the best response is to defend ourselves. And Paul's defense before Felix is an excellent example for us. This cultural moment is making it more and more challenging to be a Christian. It just is. We're facing opposition far more intense than anything most Christians in the United States have experienced in the last century. Um, Luke Goodrich, who's an author of a book called Free to Believe, The Battle Over Religious History in America, um, he says it this way, we've long lived in a country where religious freedom was secure and we didn't need to give it much thought. Now we're realizing the country is changing and we might not enjoy the same degree of religious freedom forever. If we don't start thinking about it now, we'll be unprepared, he says. 
our views on issues like, for example, homosexuality, abortion, euthanasia, labor rights, for an example, are really, I think, in our culture, possibly controversial. Christians in some countries are facing persecution because of their beliefs. Many countries are establishing laws and, restri and are restricting evangelistic activities. Situations like these and more call for Christians to respond in a competent and in a winsome way. We must, as believers, understand the times we live in and be able to engage attacks on Christianity in a polite and in a winsome way. We must know our legal rights and the best way to use them. And when we have to, we must argue our case with polite confidence and judicial competence while behaving in a manner that is above reproach. Okay, I know some young guys, some Christians. I know a young guy who's, who's an attorney, who's in law, and he's training, and he's training, and he's in um, um, law school, in, and he's doing residencies, and he wants to, right, as a Christian, um, be available for other Christians when it comes to um, um, arguing some of these things, and it's awesome for us to see. But this was interesting. You look at Paul, and you look at the accusations and how he responds. He knows his legal rights, and he responds in a winsome um, and in a way that um, shows confidence and judicial competence. Okay, and so we've seen scene one, false accusations, scene two, a solid defense, scene three now is the tragedy of procrastination, the tragedy of procrastination. And so, Tertullus, on behalf of the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Apostle Paul, have all presented their case. For Felix, this is probably the most challenging case he's been part of. How do we know this? Look at verse 22. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. And so this is how he responds to everything that's happening, okay? After taking into consideration everything both sides had presented, it was evident to Felix that none of the charges against Paul was enough to convict him. He, he's just like, look, like, I, I can't see how this guy is a troublemaker. I can't see how this guy is a ringleader. And this Nazarene sect, let them do their thing. Felix wanted to release Paul. And be done with the whole thing. But he also wanted to maintain a good reputation among the Jews and not risk another outbreak of resistance to his rule. And so, caught in the middle, not really knowing what to do, right? 
Paul's not innocent. He doesn't have enough evidence to convict him, okay? But he also wants to please the Jews. What does he do? He decides to put the case on hold by saying he would make a decision after conferring with Lysias, the commander of the Roman soldiers. It gets interesting here, okay? Felix spends the next two years procrastinating on the official verdict for the case against Paul. Two years! Doesn't make a decision. But during these two years, something interesting would happen. Felix would occasionally meet with Paul to hear more about the gospel. All right, you don't believe me? All right, look at verse 23 and 24. So Felix ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. Um, something in Paul's defense was compelling to Felix. He wanted to hear more. And so he invites Paul to a private meeting with him and his wife to hear more about faith in Jesus Christ. But the more Paul explained the gospel, the more uncomfortable Felix and his wife became. Look at verse 25. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Verse 26, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. (laughs) All right, over the course of the next two years, Felix left Paul in prison, came to visit him occasionally. Even though Felix met often with Paul, okay, originally to hear more about the gospel, it was not an honest seeking. It wasn't to hear more about how Jesus is the Christ who forgives sins. It wasn't to hear more about how Jesus provides grace and salvation and all of that. No, but Felix met with Paul often because he hoped their conversation would one day turn to the topic of a bribe. Dennis E. Johnson, who's a pastor of a church, I believe in Escondido, says this. Felix hoped that Paul, a citizen whose offering for the poor revealed his financial connections, would offer a bribe to buy his, belief, his release. Okay? But Paul, being a man of integrity, never took the bait. Um, and so Felix did this for the same reason, 
Pilate condemned Jesus while knowing his innocence. They both acted out of pure political advantage, wanting to grant a favor to the Jews. All right, what does all of this mean to us? Here we go. The governor, Felix, throughout this trial, and in private conversations with the Apostle Paul, came face to face with his sin and his need for Christ, but he backed away and put off the necessary decision and instead became obsessed with advancing his personal agenda, increasing his power, and making money. For two years, he spent exploring Christianity with one of the most winsome and articulate missionaries the church has ever seen. Yet, he failed to act on the message that had been pricking his conscience. Felix heard the gospel from the Apostle Paul, had many opportunities to stop living for himself and start living for Jesus, but he decided to procrastinate. He decided to delay his commitment to Jesus. Like Felix, many people respond to the gospel in this way. They express an initial desire for the gospel, to hear more. But the more they hear, the more uncomfortable they become with the requirements and what it means to follow Jesus. And so what do they do? They express their rejection through procrastination. This morning... I am sure in a room of this size, some of you have the attitude of Felix. You've been hearing about Jesus and his offer of salvation. You've been hearing about your need for Jesus and how he's the only one that can actually satisfy you. You've been hearing about how you're a sinner and because of uh, this, you're in desperate need of Jesus for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And like Felix, who Jesus is and what he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection has been compelling to you. You've been reading about it. You've been watching videos on YouTube about it. And you've been attending church gatherings like this one in order to understand more and learn more about Jesus. Yet, you've been procrastinating when it comes to making a decision to actually follow Jesus. To actually surrender your life to your Savior. Your attitude to following Jesus has been, I know this is what I need to do. I know I need to commit my life and everything to Jesus, but I need to fill in the gap before I do so. 
Why are you procrastinating? Today you've heard about Jesus and the life he offers. May you not procrastinate. May you choose to surrender your life to Jesus today. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until it's convenient. May you make the best decision of your life by saying yes to following Jesus. Procrastination when it comes to your job or your studies or health has consequences. It's a big topic these days. There's so many blog posts on how to kill and suffocate procrastination. There definitely is out there these days. But the truth is spiritual procrastination is a thing. But it has eternal consequences. David Guzik, who's a pastor in Santa Barbara, says this, the claims of Jesus are never convenient for us. If we insist on want, waiting for a convenient time, we will wait for an eternity, an eternity spent in agonizing separation from God. And so this morning, if God is speaking to you, all right, if you are not a Christian, may you decide to follow Jesus today. And if you are a Christian, my question to you is, what has he been compelling you to do that you've been procrastinating on, that you've been delaying? What is it? What has God, through his word, been asking you? And constantly, you, you're kind of hearing it from friends and trusted friends and family. You read the word, it's there. What is God calling you to that you've been delaying? If God is speaking to you, don't put off your obedience. It's always the right time to do the right thing. Right now, this is what's happening, okay? Something is happening in every one of us. Right here, right now. We're either softening to God or hardening our hearts to him. But the one thing that's not happening is nothing. Something is going on inside every one of us. In the gospel, God is offering us something more valuable than the wealth in this world. He's offering us the greatest joy for the longest amount of time. 
and he's offering it to us. And what he's offering to us is his son, Jesus Christ, and the life and the satisfaction and the delight that is only found in Jesus Christ. And so some of you just showed up this morning like, yeah, man, I'm just going to come, King's Cross Church, do my thing. But man, I'm telling you, man, today is the day to stop procrastinating. All right? God's speaking. God's calling you to something. And he absolutely loves you so much that he is committed to your health and well-being as in free he is and he is calling you to something and so stop procrastinating and surrender whether it's your life to say do you know what i've lived for myself Okay, I've lived for myself. I've been hearing about Jesus. He's so compelling, but I've been living for myself and I've been putting off the decision to surrender to Christ. Stop living that way and start living for Jesus. And if you're a Christian, God's always speaking. And so what has he been saying? Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father. Thank you. May you stir in our hearts passion for your name. May you continue to speak to all of us. And may you give us hearts that are tender and willing to obey you and live for you. We desire to find satisfaction and delight in so many things. But God, thank you for Jesus, that in Christ we have the ultimate satisfaction and joy and delight. So help us to treasure Christ. In his name we pray, amen.